0: I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. It's Martin Shipton, and today I'm with Keris Furlong. Keris, who I've known for quite a long time, is now the Chief Executive of uh, Chorateg, which for those who don't know means fair play in Welsh, and it's an organisation that. Is at the centre of the uh, equality agenda and uh, supports women in work essentially and on a wider basis too. Welcome, Keris. Good Thank to see you. you. For having me? <laughs> no, it's my pleasure. Um, tell me about your background and your education first of all.
1: Um, I was born in Pontyclun in Miskin and uh, born at home. Second child, of one of four girls. Um, and grew up then about eight miles out of Cardiff in a little village called Peterston. So a very kind of uh, leafy, privileged place to grow up. Um, went to a very small primary school, actually run by quite an interesting um, dynamic male head teacher who had a big influence on me. Um, but but small classes where you got to know everybody who lived in the village, you know, that kind of almost idyllic upbringing that, um, that we were lucky enough to enjoy. But Both my parents were quite politically active and uh, um, both came as the first members of their families to go to university and joined the Labour Party as students in Cardiff where they met and that had a big kind of bearing on our life as as children because we lived in a very conservative constituency and our stake would go up every election time and probably get shoved back um, the other way into the doorway. So... Um, yeah, so from there I went to, to school in Radha in Cardiff. Um, again, you know, sort of leafy, middle class upbringing and nothing, nothing, nothing extraordinary really. Um, I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do in school. I enjoyed, I really enjoyed school. I enjoyed the academic work. I enjoyed sport very much. Social um, sciences. Yeah, and then you know people always have stories about how awful careers advice is, and you know I didn't didn't know what the computer was going to churn out, but a geography teacher called me aside one day and said I think you should do social sciences you'd really enjoy it and so I did economics at a level there wasn't much choice really at that stage in terms of interesting different things outside the mainstream curricula that you could do a bit economics was taught by a great teacher called Nigel Adams who again introduced a lot of politics to that and um, I wasn't a fantastic economist by any stretch I scraped my a level um, but wasn't it was a, Kevin Brennan. Uh, Kevin yeah, Brennan sure. taught history I he never Actually. taught economics to me but he did teach me history as a year seven first first form student um which he he always embarrasses me about when i see him now (laughs) so yeah that it's funny how things come full circle so yeah from there i went to to bristol and did sociology but i spent the first year of my undergraduate degree doing equal honors politics psychology and sociology so again i had that kind of little nagging political stuff going on but I, I wasn't a member of the Labour Party or we active in student politics. I joined as a 16 year old in school thinking this was a very sort of right on radical thing to do and then promptly got bored and, and not really that interested as a student. I had more, more interesting things to do I suppose. Um, but after I graduated I did what most people then. I was lucky I graduated in 2002 and I suppose at that stage it was quite a prosperous time and I walked into a recruitment agency, and said can I have some temporary work, perhaps in the charity sector, <laughs> and ended up working for what's now Action for Children, um, which again was really eye-opening. For a, a time after that I thought maybe I ought to become a social worker. I, mean, I was really inspired by some of the work that they, they do. Um, I'm, I'm very glad I decided not to do that because uh, I, I don't think I've got the personality traits for it, the patients. Um, and from there, I, I, I suppose we were still living in Bristol and um, it was the early days of the, the, the second Blair Government and I, I had been not a Blair supporter. Um, and it was, But there were some interesting politicians around Bristol at the time and there was a lady called Valerie Davey who was one of the um, women who came in in that cohort and uh, I went for an interview for a part-time job with her as a caseworker which I didn't get and then um, wrote a very precocious letter to her afterwards saying, I really think you should give me that job Um, and so she called me back and said, well okay, we'll give you a go, you can come and work for us for a bit and that was amazing because I was working on immigration and sort of home office cases and again it just sort of gave me this slight steer without any plan that I wanted to do something in public services. around kind of supporting people, but I didn't know what that was going to look like. Um, and I, uh, simultaneously, having said I would never come back to Wales, um, this interesting thing called evolution was kind of kicking off. <laughs> and I looked across the bridge and thought, God, that does look really interesting. And I loved the, the way it was being described in terms of how it was set up as a different politic. And um, So I came back to Cardiff University to do a Masters and never left.
0: What did you do your master's in specifically?
1: Well, social science research, so I, there's a thing, uh, I got an ESRC research council Mm. um, sponsored place, so the idea was that you do a master's in social science research methods and then go on to do your PhD. So within my master's I looked at education policy and and how devolved um, education policy was kind of showing a clear divergence between what was going on in Wales. and and other parts of the UK and just how that might be an interesting area of how devolution was developing. But I decided that you know academic life wasn't for me um, and decided not to stay on with it to do the PhD and, and looked around for policy jobs effectively and ended up working in, in adult education. So,
0: But at the same time you reconnected with the Labour Party yeah. didn't you because you came Quite active in the Labour Party in Cardiff, and eventually you became a councillor, didn't you, in yeah. Canton?
1: Yeah. So I'd I'd never been to a branch meeting or um, any of those kind of formal party structures until I moved back to Cardiff. And my parents had been active in the Labour Party, as I said. Um, you know, so I had done leafleting and all that stuff as a child. But I th- and I had this. I remember having this very strong view. Um, that from when I'd worked for Valerie Davy and she said I don't care whether you're not you're a member of the Labour Party I know you will be and I thought well we about that um, but I thought I got to the view that if you wanted you had to pin your colours to one master or another and then you had to use the opportunity to shape that party along uh, the lines that you wanted to see it move and so uh, I remember talking to friends, they're saying, well, I don't like this that Plaid do or that that Labour do, and I think, well, you're never going to find a perfect fit, Um, but the values um, of the Labour Party at that time certainly were what appealed to me, so I started going on to Canton branch meetings where I lived, and and it all um, went downhill from there, Martin.
0: (laughs) Well, (laughs) you you became a councillor, of course, you got involved in the milestone, if you like, of uh, Cardiff Labour politics, which... uh, a history of being full of dissension doesn't it and yeah. I remember uh, quite a few years ago now a couple of decades ago or more there was this um, situation where there were essentially two camps there was the Sue Essex camp and the Russell Goodway mm. camp and uh, uh, again once more it proved to me the adage that I often quote which is that people within political parties hate each other more than they hate the opposition <laughs> but did you find yourself getting involved in any of that sort of stuff?
1: Well, I was completely oblivious and um, unaware of that, of course, when I got involved, and quite determined to make my own mind up about people, and when naively, as it turned out, when I did get elected, I remember the first day actually going to a group meeting in County Hall, and Labour had been decimated for the second time, so we were down to 14 councillors, I think, in Cardiff.
0: Third party. Third
1: party, and, you know, people were clearly feeling pretty bruised. Um, and other than my ward ca- colleagues, I didn't know any of those individuals. I'd never met them before, uh, perhaps on the campaign trail, but not personally. And I remember somebody saying to me, oh, um, oh, well, you were in a safe seat. We should have put one of the people who was, who lost their seat in your seat. And I thought, well, you don't know anything about me. And from that moment, I thought, I'll make my own mind up about these individuals and I'll give myself some time. And being in opposition was the best thing that could have happened for both that group and me personally because it gave us a chance to say you know what we have to renew and refresh and I thought we were making some significant progress towards that in opposition between 2008 and 2012 when we uh, the group took a huge number of seats, 46 seats I think at the next election. Um, but it didn't take long for, for those old kind of um, gripes, I suppose, to, to, to come back in, and I, I found that really surprising, and um, maybe I was too idealistic about it.
0: Because there was a strange business, wasn't there, where after that election, weren't you, for a very brief period, the chair of Cardiff Council? I was.
1: I think it was about three months. Um, there was lots that um, we wanted to do as a group, I think, but trying to bring, from a group of 14 that had sort of set out a stall in opposition against the Lib Dem Plied Coalition at the time. Um, then going to a group of 46, it almost went out the window. You know, everything that we, kind of the trust that we built between people and um, the things that we wanted to do, quite rightly had to be revisited because there were many more voices and uh, parts of the city to represent. So we had to think again. And I, um, uh, I think I might have been the, I think I was involved in, the group whip but I was certainly I think I was the chair of the group at the time something like that mm-hmm. and um, so it got to the point of having the discussions about who's going to do what and and this was one of the things that came up and naively I thought well that's something I could do I can share a meeting and we wanted to um, we had ambitions to divide the role as they have in Swansea Council of Lord Mayor and Chair of the Council to make the Council a bit more um, dynamic in terms of the way that it did its business but preserving the ceremonial important responsibilities that the Lord Men has, Well, that spectacularly backfired and it caused all sorts of divisions. And at a point, you know, by then I had a, I was working full-time at a young family and I thought, you know, I can't I can't do all of this. So I thought, let's let somebody else do it and, and step back and, and became a backbencher. Well, it was a backbencher. And then a couple of years later, decided to um, throw the towel in altogether.
0: That's it. <laughs> and what direction did your career take then?
1: So I had been working in adult education for a number of years um, in sort of policy roles and then I got the opportunity um, to join the Open University and uh, working with a, a guy you all know, Rob Humphries, who mm-hmm. was a Lib Dem candidate at one stage.
0: He was president of the World Lib Dems was, at one yeah. stage. Yeah. Um,
1: but who I'd worked with around the adult education kind of sphere and I got a job uh, working at the Open University responsible for their kind of employer engagement partnership work and and um all their external facing stuff really and i thought well this i'd always i always describe it as i'd always kind of ridden these two horses i was involved in the council and politics and very passionate about it but i was also really enjoying my career and kind of eager to see where that might go and i made i sort of always had in the back of my mind that if one of these takes off i'll go that way and when the opportunity to go to the open university came up i thought you know this is the time to really see if I can make a career out of um, being outside of politics. And I'd already turned down the opportunity to join the Cabinet when Heather Joyce was in charge of the Council and decided that, that I, I didn't want to do that full-time. So I think probably having made that decision, my mind was almost on the path to being made up. Um, and actually, I remember Rob saying to me um, at the time... and. Um, subsequently, there are lots of ways to be political in Wales and it's not all about holding elected office and I think that's really true um, there's almost nobody working in, in civil society in Wales who's not political with a small p in terms of engaged with the political process in some way and, and I find that more rewarding than being directly involved in, in the cut and thrust of politics
0: But there's another rather different dimension to your life as well isn't there, which is this uh, involvement in the pub and restaurant business how did that all come about
1: Uh, yeah somehow managed to make a side career out of the love of food and drink which is which is not not of the plan either but my husband's a chef um so when we came back to cardiff from bristol he's from cardiff as well um he was chefing part-time and doing his degree um he did a fine art degree and we made friends with another chef um, and we always used to, this before anyone had children, go out after work to to pub around the corner from where they worked and sort of hatch plans about why were there no restaurants that we liked to go to in Cardiff and wouldn't it be nice if there was a, a non brains pub a sort of because Bristol's full of independent freehouses and and that kind of thing and we'd been a bit spoilt for choice so um, we fell into it really. Um, before the financial crash, we'd, had a, we'd put a business plan together and, and got a, a loan agreed from the bank, and then financial crash happened, and then all that fell apart. And we went back to working in whatever we were doing, various things. I was working in a pub, working for Rodri and Kevin Brennan at the time, part-time, and doing my master's, and Tom was chefing. And and then um, through my now brother-in-law, Gwynn, uh, who's also our business partner, he was working for a, for a guy called Jahan who owns lots of property and venues around Cardiff and he said, oh, I've just taken the lease on this interesting derelict bank vault, do you want to come and have a look? So we did and um, from there we opened the Potted Pig and it started from there really. Um, and these things just, it's like a juggernaut that, you know, people say, oh, you come and have a look at this? Why don't you do that? And... Um, it just goes on and on so I suppose we took a bit um, we was we were the minority partners in that in that first business which we're no longer involved in um, from there we opened the Lansdowne in Canton um, just the three of us and because
0: what you've done with that pub it was quite a rundown pub before yeah. you took it over wasn't it and it's in an area which is, it's a strange sort of area, isn't it, because it's it's essentially a working class area, but there's a bit of gentrification which has gone on as well. Yeah. So when you were looking around to see where you would locate a pub, I mean, did, did it just happen to be available, or how did it come oh, about? Oh, no, m- it was over? much
1: more interesting than that. <laughs> <laughs> I was still on the council, and I got some concerns raised with me from residents who lived around that area. Um, the pub had been sold, and it, had, it was quite rundown, as you said, um, and the most of the pub had been developed into flats by Jahan, um, who we were in business with, and I didn't know this until I did a bit of digging around. So I phoned Jahan and said, "Oh, I've got residents who are concerned about this, and um, they want to know what's happening to the pub." And he said, "Well, I don't know. You know, I don't know anything about pubs, so I don't want to run a pub." Um, and the residents at the time were concerned that it was going to be turned into a Tesco or a, a sort of corner shop, and they they didn't want that there. So, actually, Jahan said, well, why didn't you and Tom go and have it? Um, so, we, we leased it. We lease. he um, still owns freehold of the building, we leased the ground floor. And we set about opening a pub, which we didn't have a clue what we were doing, quite frankly. But we did lots of research, um, going to nice pubs, and kind of, we had a, an idea of what we wanted. And, you know, we all lived in Canton. So, we just modelled it on where would... Our friends and, and us like to go and we were lucky because it was a free house that we had complete control over um, the beer and the, the drinks that we have, and um, the food that we, food was going to always be an important part of it, making sure that it was home cooked fresh food. Um, you know so much of what you get in pubs is, is sort of out of the freezer and the microwave unfortunately, although I think it's improving in a lot of places. So it was nothing, it wasn't rocket science. And then we roped in everyone that we could to help. <laughs> um, and we had some late night standing floors and painting the walls. And we opened in November 2012. Mm-hmm. And it's been been going strong ever since. And, and you said that the area is a funny area that was perhaps becoming gentrified. I remember people saying, oh, why on earth do you want to open a pub there? And, um, and, and, we knew the area because we lived in it, so it didn't seem strange to us for a start. And I suppose gentrification wasn't hadn't really happened there, but certainly what had happened is that none of my friends or us could afford to live in Pontcanna, so people lived in Canton, and we've seen that creep happen um, around the city since. Um, so in the back of our minds, we thought, no, we 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 think this is a this is a really good spot actually, and there were no other. Well, there are pubs nearby, but not 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 on the doorsteps. It's
0: very strong, really.
1: Yeah, that and that was a huge part of our, our passion, really. Um, and you know, I, I, I won't turn down a brains pint, but it pint, but it's not it's not really what I like to drink. And and there weren't many free houses in Cardiff that were able to kind of. We knew that there were great independent breweries, not just in Wales, but outside. But the way that um, that tenanted pubs work is that it's so expensive for them to buy outside of, um, of, of the house that they're tied to and we knew that that was going to be a great selling point for us that we could bring in you know we have five lines of beer on all the time um, we do craft beer great cider um, and we knew that was going to be an appeal to people because they couldn't get it somewhere else um, and you know we were lucky that within the first year or so we, we won a camera pub of the year and um, we went on from there.
0: You're still involved now?
1: Yeah, so it's still the three of us running it, um, and I mean, day to day, we've we've got fantastic staff, so we've got a full-time manager. In fact, we've got, um, at the moment, a job share manager, which is fab. Um, so when I talk about agile working with my choir tech cat onto people, mm. I say, well, we can do it in the Lansdowne, so we have a, a two people who share that role at the moment.
0: And your empire has extended, hasn't it?
1: well it's sort of extended and contracted so we i suppose from that point in 2012 then through our partnership with Jahan we opened um a restaurant in Llandaff Poro and on Wellfield Road um but t- over 12 months ago now we sold our interest in all three of those restaurants back to Jahan you know thanked him very much for the opportunity that he given us to sort of get into the trade in the first place but wanted to do it for ourselves so at that point um We bought a restaurant in Pontcana, Milkwood, what's cheaper, now Milkwood, and we opened the Grange pub in the Grange Town, and no more Martin, that's enough for anybody. (laughs)
0: Because the Grange, um, what you've done with that is you've you've resurrected a pub that was on its knees, really, haven't you? And um, uh, I know know, people who are interested in pubs, uh, generally, and they do uh, and have formed a, a big part of Cardiff culture, a lot of people have been very concerned about the number of pubs that have been closing down and in a sense it's quite a brave thing to uh, to move into a pub and to say right we're going to give this a go. So what would you say were the ingredients that were necessary for you to make it a success?
1: Well I think you know having gone into the Lansdowne not really knowing what we were doing or, or being confident whether it would work we were confident with the Grange because we felt that we had a model which, which did work. And, you know, like like it had been five years earlier when we opened the Lansdowne in terms of, you know, people were buying houses and renting in Canton because they couldn't afford to live in Pontianna. That's now the case in Grangetown. So a lot of my sister, I've got two younger sisters, um, a lot of their friends live in Grangetown. You know, they work in the BBC or in the Bay. Um, in in the media or in, in politics and, and they live in Grangetown and we thought, well, these are exactly the sort of people who um, don't necessarily want to go into town every night but there's nothing locally I mean, the Cornwall's great, it's a great brains pub um, but it, from the number of pubs that there had been in Grangetown it just felt that it would be such a shame for that um, place to close and, you know, we we had a lot of doubters I remember when the building work was going on people would poke their head in and say, well, you know what on earth are you doing? Um, and when the police came round, so the licensing police came round to sort of have a chat and ask when we were opening, and I was this was amazed amazed me. But the the licensing officer said, "Oh well, we were hoping it'd be turned into flats; it'd be less yeah. trouble for us." And I thought, "Well, we'll show you," and um, and we have. And so the Lansdowne and the Grange are both really close to Cardiff City. We have great um, supporters who come in at the time of the football, and we, you know, touch wood, we never have any trouble. Um, pe- people self-regulate each other. I think if you give them somewhere nice to go, they respect it. And I remember the opening night of, of the Grange, there's this fantastic local called Lee, um, and he used to work in security, and he often sits at the bar. And I was chatting to him, and he said, don't worry if there's any trouble, we'll sort it out. And, and two sort of um, likely lads walked in, and, and they didn't come to the bar, so they weren't, sort of interested in having a drink, they were just checking the place out. And they, they were they were scoping it out and he and he sort of winked at me and he just walked them round the pub and back out the other door and I thought this is working already because they want to own it and then that's what it's about. It's a community resource. You know, the other thing is you don't go in to open a pub to make a fortune. It's not gonna happen. Um, we wanted to have a, a business that employed people and you know that is sustainable but We're not going to make a fortune out of it. And that's what puts a lot of people off because it's hard work and it's not hugely financially rewarding, but it is really rewarding in lots of other ways. And, you know, I'd still love going to the Lansdowne and the Grange on a Sunday with my family and chatting to the people next to us. And, um, you know, they've become friends and and part of our community as well.
0: You're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. Qualatex. How did you come to take over as chief executive of Um
1: It wasn't. Any- <laughs> There's a pattern here. It wasn't anything I ever thought what I would do. In the time that I had been working in education, in politics, um, and in business, actually, that you know, I, I had encountered um, inequality and sexism, and not hugely and never in a way that particularly worried me uh, but in the way that a lot of women come to just accept and I suppose as I got older I'd, I'd been brought up very much to think you know I was one of four girls both lefty parents you know girls you can do anything be anything no nothing in your way and I went into my kind of career as a young person and through my education thinking well you know all these all the all the arguments have been won by the feminists in the past and it's just about us now getting in there and, and making it happen of course, I mean, how naive um, was I? And, and so, particularly once I had my first child, um, and the, the council was not geared up for maternity leave or understanding what that was going to be like. Once I progressed in my career, and I found myself often being the only woman amongst people in higher education, and, and I'd always championed other women. I'd always talked about women in leadership and, and how, how important um, having the voice of women was. I was involved with something that Leighton Andrews set up in when he was Public Services Minister. Actually, he asked me to join a group around leadership in public services, which was fantastic and really a great opportunity. and And they had a summit back in Swansea a couple of years ago, and I I spoke at that about um, women in leadership and the lack of. And at the time, I remember looking in the room and thinking that, you know, we've got um, people from health boards from further education from local government from um, all parts of our public services in wales and and i felt that they needed to hear some harsh truths um and so they did and um you know at the, i'd seen so many frankly not wonderful men progress quite swimmingly in their careers and lots of brilliant women not uh, when the job at carotag came up a, a number of people text me and said oh this is right up your street, you should go for it. And of course I'd known them already. I knew Joy, my predecessor. I hadn't worked with them. I, I probably had the same perception of the organisation as lots of people do. You know, oh, it's a bit sort of middle class and professional. Um, is it, is it, does it really talk to the kind of social justice stuff that I'm interested in? But I went for the job, and it's the best thing I ever did.
0: There's quite a lot yeah. of employees, aren't there?
1: Eighty staff. Yeah. yeah, so we've got four offices across Wales. I mean, a lot of that is because of European funding, so we have one big project called Agile Nation 2, which is fantastic, and, and a lot of our staff are supported by that.
0: What does that do then, Keris?
1: So, Agile Nation 2 is about, it's, there are two strands to it, it's about working directly with women to improve their skills and confidence, and particularly working with women who are perhaps looking to be a supervisor or a line manager for the first time, and, and often with women who, who lack confidence or haven't thought about how they want their career to progress. And we deliver a ILM qualification, Institute of Leadership and Management, but we also do a lot of coaching and mentoring and support and give them the techniques that they need to kind of get on. And the outcomes that we get from that are that they ideally get a pay rise or they progress in their careers. So that's, that's the women's side of it. The other side is we work with SMEs um, across Wales, Originally in the priority sectors, until the um, economic policy in Wales changed somewhat, and we go into those SMEs and we help, we do a sort of business culture survey, help them think about how they could embed equality and diversity in their workplace, and think about how they recruit um, staff, how they retain staff, how they progress staff, and. What support they might put in place for men and women to really get the, the best out of their their time in work and, and for the employer to get the best out of their of their staff. So it's two strands and we work with hundreds of businesses and thousands of women across Wales.
0: When it comes to the difficulties that women have in progressing, to what extent do you think it is the consequence of some conscious approach on the part of the men who are in control and to what extent is it unconscious that it's just the way things have always been and therefore um, they don't really think about the processes that are involved in helping women to progress?
1: I would say in most places it's unconscious um, and you know that's reflective of the nature of our society which still is patriarchal frankly. I mean there is outright discrimination but that tends to be less often and so most most employers that we work with once you turn the light on they're on board but it's just about we we don't want to go into businesses and organizations and say oh you're dreadful you know look how you're treating women we want to say you can be better organizations and businesses and improve your business practice and improve your bottom line if you do these things and the outcome is also that men and women have a better experience but where there is discrimination, um, outright discrimination, you know, that's illegal <laughs> and we need to call it out and give women the confidence and, and men, frankly, to, to call it out and act upon it. Um, and, you know, we, we can do that in lots of different ways. But both of those things contribute to the, the negative experiences that women have, whether that's around gender pay gap or, or um, them feeling that they're stuck in certain sectors um, and not able to to fulfil their ambition, so you know there's, uh, it's a complex picture and it's different in different parts of Wales and in different sectors. But there's no reason, in my view, why a young woman um, who's bright at maths shouldn't want a successful career in the IT or computing or engineering. But something happens at the moment to prevent her from doing that. And you know, in the case of some sectors, it's not only a lack of progress, but we're getting worse. So I think we're at a time now where we can have an honest dialogue about it and hopefully mature dialogue. And most of the time when we talk to people, they're up for that. I always say to colleagues, we want to do that in a non-threatening way because the prize is too great for us. You know, It's not about winning each battle. It's about how we want to change the culture in our workplaces and in society.
0: And yet it's not all negative, is it, Keris, because... If you look at things like the, uh, the list that Wales Online, Western Mail, produced uh, quite recently in terms of the, the number of, uh, of women who are in uh, responsible positions, including yourself, mm-hmm. who have managed to make a way uh, and make a career, it's clear that there are a lot of very admirable role models around. So it's not that there is necessarily uh, something that is entirely blocking women from making progress because there are plenty of women around who have made progress and achieved uh, a great deal and this is why there are so many role models
1: yeah that's true and we have to do more to kind of hold those role models up because um, unless you can see them then other young women and and young men can't aspire to do those jobs and and, and be those those kind of people but um, we also have a responsibility to to pull up the people behind us because Lots of people, um, I said, you know, I've, I've come from a very privileged background, but lots of people don't, and they face considerable uh, battles to get to those places. So, you know, we're still a very white society. Most of our organisations that are led by women are white middle class women, and I'm very conscious of, of that all the time. So, you know, there are many more battles to fight, and, um, you know, women are still disadvantaged across the board.
0: One of the problems, of course, in that context is that we have uh, religious and cultural uh, minority groups that are much more overtly discriminatory than uh, the society um, in, in which the majority live, if you like. One can argue that there are endemic disadvantages for women in certain religions, And in certain parts of the world, and we now have um, minority populations over here, and there are, of course, um, admirable organisations which are seeking to help women in those ethnic minority organisation in those ethnic minority groups to to achieve. But but the uh, you know if the if the if, if white Western society is patriarchal, the societies from which they come are much more so, are they not?
1: Well, it's not it's not for me to comment on other people's culture or religion, but what I would say is that it's about understanding people's own lived experience and, um, and what their ambitions are, and not trying to fit everybody into a set of norms that we are used to, but actually finding the support that they need to get on and achieve what they want to achieve. So um, I think it's going back much more to that kind of... Sharing understanding between cultures, and um, and there are you know there are there are practical things that we have to do. So I think it's perfectly fine for me to be overt about wanting to recruit a more diverse workforce or a more diverse set of board members, for example. Because unless I have different voices around the table, both in my team and in and in the, those who govern us, then we will continue to perpetuate the same norms as, uh, as have gone before so I try and, and don't always succeed to go out of my way to to understand other people's perspectives and where they're coming from and and sometimes I won't agree with the choices that they make but I'm absolutely sure they won't agree with lots of the things that I do in my lifestyle and I'm okay with that so I'd expect them to be okay with it as well but it's it's about making the connections and talking and understanding I think.
0: I think there are some concerns about the fact that in some communities women are meant to stay at home and uh, there, are, there are examples of people who cannot speak English because they're not encouraged to go out uh, and mix with, with other people, um, that they're expected to stay at home and be prepared to make the food when their husbands bring guests back to the house. Does that sort of thing exercise you?
1: yeah and and that happens in in white working class and middle class families as well you know kind of uh, control and um, coercive control is endemic as we know so it's I I don't think that's I mean it might be um, a cultural stereotype but it's not necessarily restricted to certain communities or faiths it does worry me because I think what I'm concerned about is women have choices and that they feel that they're able to exercise those choices now Some women make the perfectly reasonable and, um, in my view, very um, admirable choice to stay at home and look look after their family. And I'm absolutely fine with that as well. (laughs) I don't think it's about forcing uh, women or men into a certain set of behaviours, but it's about saying, at the moment, we are looking at the fact that there's a shift in society, I think, going on. And maybe some people who thought that they were making an active choice might start to think, well, have I actively made that choice or have I sort of stumbled into that position or kind of uh, position in my family or, or society? So I think it's about giving women confidence, showing them what they can be, making those role models successful, giving them the skills and also talking openly to men about, well, you know, you talk to some men and say, well, you know, two incomes to your household might be quite helpful, actually. Um, and I always get cross when people talk about, well, more rights for women is going to mean less rights for men it's it's not it's not as simplistic as that just because i'm able to exercise my rights doesn't mean that you're not able to exercise yours so i think it's just having that dialogue people to say this is not a threatening thing and if you if you are empowered and aware of your choices and educated and all of those things and you still choose to stay at home that's fine
0: although of course when in local authorities it was decided to Introduce more equal pay. It did result in some men having pay cuts, didn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah, and and equal pay is tough. But if women were discriminated against because they were being underpaid, then it's right that that's, that should be addressed. And and in my experience, most of that was about overtime, and highly paid overtime rather than cutting someone's basic hours. So it's it's always more complex than perhaps the headline suggests. Um, and I think you know most places now. E- certainly, in the public sector equal pay is not a problem, but pay gap is, and they're different. And it's understanding um, what that means. So, you know, why are there more men in senior roles, even in sectors where women dominate? So, if we look at teaching, particularly in primary schools, but also secondary schools, m- mostly female-dominated roles. But we still have more male head teachers than female. Is that why, the case in the private That is the case. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And why is that the case? Um, but it's not just in in public sector. It's also, of course, uh, the case in the private sector. And as we've seen from the very interesting analysis that has started to come out around gender pay gap reporting, which I, you know, we welcome and think is a, a good bit of legislation. Uh, that is going to start shifting people to think. Well, so the number of companies have said to me if you just take the chief exec in the IT department now, our pay gap's not too bad. And I say, well, women like to work in IT too, so maybe you should think about why that's the case.
0: One of the big campaigns at the moment, of course, is the WASPy campaign, which is about the fact that there were uh, a lot of women who thought that they were going to be able to retire at a certain age um, who had that taken away from them and they had to work longer and it messed up their financial planning Mm. Um, but one extra element to that of course is the fact that in the um, pension uh, rights that individuals had um, it was in fact discriminatory against men wasn't it because women retired at 60 and men retired at 65 Mm. Um, and that's something that men don't bang on about.
1: Yeah perhaps and and, um I, I'm personally um, ambivalent about the retirement age because at my age it seems like an awful long way off or maybe one that will never come I think the thing there is about how your how women that that particular group of women f- were led to believe one thing and then the reality was very different and that, and that is unfair um, I think if we can that if we can equalize out the fact that there are long periods in in, in certain generation of women's lives where they don't work because they take time out for childcare and then they're penalised because they haven't made those pension contributions you know it's it's not as arbitrary as the date at which you retire and the amount of money but it's understanding who does the care and responsibilities and the majority of the unpaid care as well so I'm quite relaxed about men and women retiring at the same time as long as throughout the course of their careers
0: they're rewarded equally for the work that they do. One thing which is interesting is the extent to which there should be further legislative change. Now, a few months ago, um, my friend, and I think your friend as well, Laura McAllister, came out with a report which was suggesting that in future National Assembly elections, there should be an inbuilt system to the electoral system, which meant that there would necessarily be an equality of numbers between men and women. Is that something that you support?
1: Yes, wholeheartedly. Um, don't talk to me about the intricacies of electoral systems, I'll leave that to Laura. But I think we, we've been publicly supportive of the recommendations that she's made, and, and for a number of reasons. Um, one, I believe that we should have more Assembly members because our democracy has evolved and much more complex and we have powers that we need to use and scrutinise more appropriately. Uh, and I think um, it's an unpopular discussion to have, but politicians are stretched thin and if we want good scrutiny of, of our assembly then then that needs to happen. Now, alongside that, if we want proper scrutiny, we need to make sure that the place is representative of the people it serves and it's not, although it does better than others, with 42% women. I've always said when it comes to quotas and things like that, there are they're a sort of necessary evil to get us to where we need to be and hopefully in future we won't need them. But I think until you embed equality in our political structures, then you still need that proactive measure. And we know that in Wales, um, both Labour and Plaid, particularly through twinning and zipping and all women's shortlists, have been able to demonstrate that that positive um, action does make a difference in terms of the number of women, and when they fall back on the commitment to it, it hasn't. We int- we fall back into the negative patterns that we we've, we've always adopted. So, I suppose I see it as a necessary evil um, to get us to equality, and hopefully once that's embedded, it wouldn't be required in the long term. Um, but we, you know, we've got a, lo- a long way to go to convince people of that. The, the classic argument that's thrown back, both by both men and women, a lot of women I know feel this is, well, I don't want to be the, the token woman who's there just because it was an all-women shortlist. Well, if they think that we live in a meritocracy now, then, then they're wrong because are they suggesting that only 28% of women are able to be cancers in Wales because that's, that's the figure that we're at. And, you know, I think we, we have to have these tough conversations. And I think Laura's report makes a number of excellent recommendations. I think it's going to be a battle to convince the politicians of all parties and at all levels, including local government, that they need to vote for change.
0: Another thing which um, concerns me and others I know is the fact that there are other groups that are excluded from power. And one could argue that working class men and uh, working class boys are not exactly uh, well represented uh, at the assembly. For example, what can be done to seek to ensure that we have a more representative, uh, democratic national body? Um, you know, wider than simply the gender issue.
1: I think the class issue is really important and. St- it's as important for women as it is for men. Um, I wouldn't say we've got more working-class women than we have working-class men either. So it's something we need to tackle across the board and in all parties. There's something about what we what we expect and value in politicians, and you know we hold them up to a, a great degree of scrutiny, quite rightly. Um, but we're also partial to vilifying them and expecting the um, impossible from people, and that frankly puts people off getting involved in politics so I think all political parties need to work harder to engage those people in feeling that their voice is important and can make a difference and we know it does make a difference so you can relate what we know about gender to to class and ethnicity and a range of other things so we know that when women are there when women's voices are in the chamber different things are debated and discussed and legislated on I have no doubt that if more working class people are in the the Assembly, we would reflect their needs um, and lived experience much more effectively, so um, I certainly don't need convincing of that need.
0: On the issue of sexual harassment, at the time of the Harvey Weinstein scandal and uh, the revelations relating to that particular individual, um, there were people who came forward to suggest that within the National Assembly there was an endemic culture of sexual harassment, which I have to say surprised me. I was aware that there were individuals and that there were politicians who had behaved in an absolutely shocking way over the years, and in fact there was one occasion when I went out of my way to draw that to the attention of their party and um, hopefully some action was taken as a consequence of that. But to suggest that that it's endemic, I thought, was a bit over the top, to be honest. Karis, what what's your perspective on that?
1: I'm not sure endemic was a word I've, I've used, and I don't recall anyone else using, but what I do think, and I've certainly said, is that it should come no, as no surprise that we have these issues in our Assembly any more than we do here in your offices or in, in my workplace or any other it's endemic across society and therefore you know, we shouldn't be surprised that there there, there were issues within the assembly itself. Um, so it wasn't surprising to me. I mean I, I never worked in the assembly or was particularly close to that kind of bubble so I suppose the kinds of things that you would have seen I, I wouldn't necessarily have been exposed to. But I, I just made the what I suppose I consider a rational leap that if this is happening in the film industry, in Westminster, in businesses, and we know from talking to my, my friends, my sisters and others, that they experience it as hairdressers and lawyers, and then it's probably a reasonable assumption to make that it also happens in, in Cardiff Bay.
0: And of course, um, last November there was an extremely shocking event that took place. Uh, the suicide of Carl Sargent uh, after his uh, removal from the Cabinet by Carlin Jones. And of course there's been much debate about the circumstances of uh, the situation that, that led to what occurred. But certainly it's the case that he and the legal representatives who represented him were making the point that he was not told exactly what he was supposed to have done wrong. And when he tried to uh, establish, and when the solicitor tried to establish what had happened or, or what allegations were made against him, he, he wasn't told. Now, it seems to me that if people are being accused of having done something wrong, which is going to have an impact on their career, they ought to be Told exactly what it is that's been alleged against them, so they can defend themselves, and that does not appear to have taken place on this occasion. Does that concern you?
1: I think um, I guess we'll know more about what was happened and who said what and was told what at the time as the various inquiries and investigations take place. I mean, I recall at the time that. Um, Carl put out a very strongly worded personal statement that said that he'd been made aware um, that they were allegations of a sexual nature or some words to that effect.
0: I think they, they were unspecified. They didn't say who'd made the allegations. Oh, no, and I
1: wouldn't expect them to, but in the course, I suppose, had the Labour Party policy followed through, then, um, you know, there would be more detail that followed. But, you know, all we can do at this stage, personally, I feel, I've said before, just sad for Carl's family and and everything that they've gone through and you know we've talked about this as, as colleagues and as the women's movement privately and I just say all we can do the politics is not for us to get involved in all we can do is continue to try and do the positive work that we're trying to do to improve women's lives and to support the kind of cultural change that we know will hopefully not lead to such a anxious time on all sides um, that we've experienced over the last six months so you know, it's not to say that we aren't interested in the detail of what happened but that's for others to explain and to articulate. All all we can do is continue to do the work we do to try and make Wales a bit more of an equal place to live and work.
0: But as a matter of principle it's right isn't it that if people are going to be removed from their job that they should know precisely what they're accused of and who their accusers are?
1: I mean, I don't know um, about the conflation of the issues that were raised with Carl and the reshuffle, I guess, all that's to, to come out. But I think it's important to also respect the anonymity of people who, I mean, frankly, no one's going to make allegations to somebody in a position of significant power and authority lightly. There are people who
0: make up allegations.
1: I don't think there's any suggestion that that's the case um, here. Personally, I... We don't
0: know, do we, because the accusers haven't come forward. We
1: don't know, but I don't, as a woman, um, think that many women would put themselves in that position. And at the time, you have to remember, you mentioned Harvey Weinstein, you know, there was this kind of movement to um, shine a light on what was going on in a lot of organisations and places, and you know but it still requires a huge amount of bravery and to to actually come forward and describe what's happened to you in in the past or in, in the present so you, you I, I don't think anybody can reasonably not feel sympathy on both sides and and you know after Carl um, died there was never going to be a satisfactory ending for anybody anybody involved whether that's Carl and his family, and, and the awful experience that they are still going through, the women who made the allegations, the politicians involved, nobody's going to come out of it and say, Well, I was right all along, or I'm, I'm perfect and I couldn't have learnt anything. So I think, you know, all of it is is part of the journey that we're on, and it makes me, you know, I, I, I knew Carl, it makes me feel sad um, for him that because he did, he did lots of great things in his career and, his, and in his personal um, life, no doubt. But this is where we are now. And it does concern me that because of the, the way that everybody's been involved in the story, I suppose, and, and naturally it's been reported, that perhaps in the future women working in the Assembly will be less confident. Or women working in your organisation or others would be less confident in coming forward. Um, so we have to be really careful about that.
0: In general terms, Keris, so far as the advancement of women is concerned, are you optimistic or pessimistic?
1: Optimistic. I'm very. I mean, I am an optimistic person, um, but also I'm optimistic about the time that we're in now, and the changes that we can see. But I always say to other women, you know, my mother-in-law said to me last night, and she says to me regularly, oh, you landed on your feet in the right job at the right time with everything that's going on. And I always feel, that I bristle a little bit, because I think, well, yes, you're right, that the time, the culture change time is now, but it's incumbent on leaders, not just women, um, in Wales and, and outside to, to actually make that change happen and make sure it's sustained. So I see an opportunity, but also a huge amount of hard work. But, you know, you've got a daughter, a teenage daughter, I've got two daughters. A key driver is that I don't want them to experience some of the things that, that women today have to experience in work. And, and if we can make that change, then and I think we can, and I think there's a, a willingness to, um, then that will be positive. You know, lots of, lots of male leaders of organisations say to me, it suddenly dawned on me when my daughter in her 20s and 30s started work that actually I hadn't been doing enough on this stuff in my working life, and I want to change that now. So some of it will change with generations, but some of it is about taking our chance now to really shift culture in Wales.
0: You mentioned earlier that a lot of uh, funding for quality comes from the European Union. How is Brexit going to affect you? Well...
1: Brexit will affect us as an organisation, but more importantly, will have a huge impact on women in Wales. Um, and So we, we receive funding through the European Social Fund. We're working really hard to make sure that we're sustainable for the future. So, um, and actually you know, doing a reasonable job on that, because I think there is an appetite for organisations to work with us, and, and they're willing to pay for our services um, to do so. So I'm confident that Quarry Tech will be around I hope that it won't need to be around in 25 years' time. We've been we've been around 25 years so far. But the more important thing about Brexit is what is it going to mean for, for women, and, and not just women, but for the most vulnerable, deprived communities in Wales. So we've talked a lot about movement of people and trade. We haven't talked about social issues. And when it comes to things like European social funding, I mean, frankly, I'd rather see the back of some of the bureaucracy that goes on around that. But what I am concerned about is when the money comes back to the UK, will it come to Cardiff to be administered by Welsh Government where it should be, or will it sit with the Treasury? And will it be redistributive in the way that it has been so that we can focus work on improving opportunities for people in our deprived communities and not spending it on, on, on other things? So those things worry me and I think there's been a lack of dialogue about the social side of Brexit. Uh, we talked a lot about um, about trade and and finance. So, I feel a responsibility as an organisation that's being able to demonstrate positive benefits of spending European money to talk about well what happens afterwards. And you know that's not a land grab or a financial uh, grab from our point of view, but because we know that that work has a meaningful impact on people's lives. And I don't see another easy way of being able to. Train the volume of women and organisations that we've worked with over the last five or six years without European funding. So we're, you know, we're working really hard to make that case both in Westminster
0: and in Cardiff Bay. Now, Karis Furlong, thank you very much indeed. Thanks for listening to my podcast. Martin Shipton meets. We'll be back for more next week.